What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 8 of season 2 of this here podcast, So What? We are back at it because there is so much delightful and intriguing and beautiful and strange and thought-provoking historic needlework to look at and think about and talk about and love and all of that good stuff. How many times did I say and in one sentence? I don't know, but love it. Anywho, today's episode is about needlework from a region I've not really covered on the podcast yet, and that is India. So we're getting into Indian embroidery. I talked about colonial Indian needlework last season, but I want to talk about Indian embroidery itself instead of just in the context of British colonialism. Indian embroidery is something I've loved for a long time, but haven't really studied in depth before, so I've learned a lot in the process of researching and writing this episode, and I hope you'll learn a lot by listening to it. As always, and hopefully you're not too sick of me saying this, but it's good to remind you all, and to say it for those who are listening to So What for the first time, images of what I'm discussing today and sources are up on the podcast social media pages. That's at So What Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or on SoWhatPodcast.com. There's also Patreon.com slash SoWhatPodcast if you want to support the pod itself. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? Indian embroidery. A very exciting but almost daunting task because there are many, many different types of Indian embroidery. I can't go through all the different types chronologically because that would be confusing and a bit weird, so I'll go through the different techniques region by region. Unfortunately, I truly do not have time to go through every single technique. If I did, we would be here for days. So I'm going to talk about some of the most famous and or widespread techniques. I'm really excited about this topic because India has so many different types of embroidery that are really distinct and each region developed its own style. And I love that it's possible to see how these styles shift and develop across time and place. Okay, onwards. Let's start with chikankari, also called chikan work. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. I did try to make sure with a bunch of YouTube videos, but apologies if I'm not getting it exactly right. Chikankari comes from Lucknow, India, the state capital of Uttar Pradesh in northern India. It's historically a type of white work embroidery worked in very small stitches on cotton. It involves white stitching on white fabric, basically. Today, though, chikankari isn't limited to just white work. It now involves a variety of fabrics and colors. What has stayed the same, though, is its emphasis on very delicate, light stitching. Chikan work is made by block printing a pattern on a piece of fabric and then embroidering along that pattern and then washing the fabric to remove that print. It reminds me of how I do embroidery. I draw a pattern, embroider the pattern, and then wash the pattern out. Simple and straightforward and so nice because you know exactly what you're doing. But it's actually not that simple or straightforward because chicane work is actually super labor intensive. It involves around 35 different stitches that you can divide into three groups. There are the flat stitches, the raised and embossed stitches, and the jalis, the open trellis-like stitches that involve opening tiny holes in the cloth. Want to know more about the history of chikankari? I bet you do and I'm here to provide that. It's believed to have been introduced by Nur Jahan, the wife of a Mughal emperor named Jahangir, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, who ruled from 1605 to 1627. Chikankari definitely did thrive under the patronage of the Mughals, from Nur Jahan in the early 17th century all the way through 1857, but references to this type or a similar type of embroidery have been found from all the way back in the 3rd century BC. Megasthenes, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm really out here trying. Megasthenes? I hope so. 
Anyway, he's a Greek historian, diplomat, and ethnographer and explorer of India in the 3rd century BC, and he mentioned the creation of embroidered flower muslin fabrics in India. Presumably, he is talking about Chikankari or something similar. Which is so cool, we love to see almost 2,500 years of history. And that emphasis on floral patterns and motifs that he mentions in his writing is still present in Chikankari today. Almost all Chikan work uses floral imagery. Now, on to the next type of embroidery, Kantha embroidery. Kantha is from West Bengal and Bangladesh, specifically from the regions of Bengal and Odisha. Kantha work is known for its simplicity, as the basis of it is just a running stitch. Kantha was traditionally practiced by rural women, using old and worn-out materials like old garments and clothes and stuff. Layers of this recycled cloth are quilted together with that simple running stitch and then decorated with embroidery in a variety of stitches like darning, satin, and buttonhole. Motifs include birds, other animals, flowers, and depictions of everyday activities. Kantha is used to decorate things like saris, dress materials, bed covers, wall hangings, upholstery, and a whole variety of fun and flirty textile bits and bobs of all sizes. This type of embroidery is really colorful and I am such a fan of mixing together bright colors, so Kantha work is honestly so up my alley. And now, a brief delve into the history of Kantha embroidery. And I do need to say briefly, Thank you so much for joining me on this whistle-stop tour of the techniques and history of a bunch of different types of embroidery. I hope you're enjoying the ride. I know it's very brief and kind of all over the place, but I think it's really fun because this episode is just wall-to-wall -wall facts, and I love facts, and I hope you do too. So speaking of facts, let's get back into Kantha history. There's a really good overview of Kantha's terminology and history on a website called Strand of Silk, which is a clothing company based in London and Mumbai, which platforms Indian fashion. I really like the way they describe Kantha, so I want to share it with all of you. Here's what they say. Quote, Interestingly, Kantha embroidery derives its name from the same word with two different meanings. Kantha means rags in Sanskrit, which reflects the fact that Kantha embroidery is made up of discarded garments or cloths. The word also means throat, and was named so due to its associations with the Hindu deity Lord Shiva. The Samudra Manthan, a popular episode in Hindu mythology, describes that in order to protect the world, Lord Shiva consumed the poison that came about due to the churning of the ocean. Goddess Parvati was shocked by Lord Shiva's actions and wrapped her hands around his neck, strangling Lord Shiva and stopping the poison in his throat, rather than allowing it to drop to the universe that is held in Lord Shiva's stomach. The potency of the poison caused Lord Shiva's neck and throat to turn blue, therefore giving him the moniker Nila Kantha. Nila translates to blue. Kantha is one of the oldest forms of embroidery that originated in India. Its origins can be traced back to the ancient pre-Vedic ages. However, Kantha embroidery as we know it today was found in Krishnada's Kaviraj's 500-year-old book Chaitanya Charitamrita. Motifs found in early Kantha embroidery include many symbols that were derived from ancient art. These symbols depict or are reflective of nature, such as the sun, the tree of life, and the universe. It was not until later that Kantha embroidery was used as a medium of cultural and religious significance, which came about as a result of Hinduism's influence and was used in ceremonies and pujas, including to celebrate weddings and births. 
Rural housewives in West Bengal played a significant part in the evolution of kantha embroidery. It was customary for these women to make use of kantha's widely used running stitch and embroidery techniques to create quilts for their families, as well as embroider personal fabrics and garments such as saris, dhotis, and handkerchiefs with simple running stitches along the edges. For centuries, the techniques of the hereditary craft were, and still are, passed down from mother to daughter. Though it continued to be practiced amongst rural women, recognition of the craft faded over time until it was revived on a global scale in the 1940s by the renowned Kala Bhavana Institute of Fine Arts, which is part of the Visva Bharati University in Shantini Ketan, West Bengal. It was revived yet again by Shamlu Dudeja in the 1980s when she founded Self-Help Enterprise, also known as She, which helped empower women and their livelihood through kantha embroidery, end quote. I realize that is a super chunky quote, but it taught me a lot and I hope it does for you too. I think it does a really good job of summarizing the history and impact of kantha embroidery. Kantha is probably the type of Indian embroidery I knew most about before starting research for this episode, but learning much, much more about it has been an absolute treat. The next type of embroidery I want to get into is Pulkari. Some say it's the most famous type of embroidery to come out of the Punjab. Punjab is in the northern part of the Indian subcontinent and is made up of eastern Pakistan and northern India. It's also the heart of India's Sikh community. Pulkari literally means flower work, and it does, unsurprisingly, involve embroidering flower motifs. This type of embroidery is unusual because it's worked in darning stitches from the reverse side of the cloth, and the design appears on the front side. The ground fabric is usually a hand-woven cotton dyed red or indigo blue, and the embroidery threads are very, very vibrant silk threads, which creates a contrast that is honestly just delightful. Go look at the pictures. It's so great. We love a bright color. We love some ground fabric and embroidery thread contrast. Big fan. What a treat. There are a whole lot of different styles of Pulkari embroidery, and it can be stitched on a whole variety of stuff. One notable example is Pulkari on headdresses called bogs, bags, bogs, B-A-G-H-S. That means gardens. These headdresses, these bogs, are traditionally made in preparation for weddings, and a single one can take up to a year to complete. That is such a crazy dedication to the embroidery. Truly, I could not do it, but I respect and admire those who can so, so much. The next type of embroidery is for those who love glitz and glamour and just like bling in general. It's big time shiny. It's called zardozi and it's basically Indian metal thread work. Zar means gold and dozi means work, so it's literally gold work. But silver threads are also happening, they are also there. It basically involves a heckin' lot of gold and or silver-wrapped threads, and sometimes embellishments like pearls and precious stones. It is luxurious. Trust me, go look at those photos, see for yourself. It is so fancy. Zardozi comes from Persia and was historically used for palace furnishings and animal trappings. The 17th century Mughal Emperor Akbar was a big fan of it, and it continued to be popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Back then, it was stitched on velvet or silk exclusively. 
It's still used today to decorate special occasion garments like wedding saris, but it usually involves imitation gold and silver because real gold and silver is expensive, right? No matter what though, Zardozzi is so shiny, so if you like glitzy stuff, this is the one for you. And I don't know about all of you, but sometimes when I think of Indian embroidery, I think about those little mirror sequins that are often a part of embroidery from that region. I think it's because when I was younger and knew people who'd visit India, they'd always come back with some embroidered textile with those little mirrors on it. Childhood me did not know that those mirrors are part of a specific kind of embroidery from India called shisha, meaning glass, or mirror work embroidery. Mirror work embroidery is popular in Gujarat and Rajasthan, especially in the Kutch region of Gujarat. Like a lot of the other embroidery styles I've discussed today, mirror work started in the 17th century during the Mughal Empire. The reflective mirror elements of this type of embroidery may have originally come from the use of naturally occurring mica, which was actually used to make things shine and glitter in 17th and 18th century English women's needlework and decorative arts too. I think you've likely heard me talk about that before. Anyway, in the 17th and 18th century, mica was magic. It was expensive, but it was the ultimate way to get something that shone and reflected. But then from the 19th century on, man-made pieces of mirrored glass were readily available. Traditionally, this glass was blown by hand and then cut into a variety of shapes using dampened special scissors, but now thicker glass made in factories is more common. While mirror work is sometimes just decorative, some communities believe that mirror work is auspicious as a tool for warding off evil, as it reflects bad luck and evil spirits away from the wearer. In shisha embroidery, these glass mirrors are accompanied by really colorful embroidery. Textiles embellished with mirror work are worn during Navaratri festivities. Navaratri is a Hindu festival that lasts nine nights and is celebrated in autumn. It's also called Durga Puja, and although it is celebrated in different ways in different parts of India, it always celebrates the female expression of the divine. During Navaratri, people celebrate the creative power of the goddess, who is personified in the forms of Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati. But mirror work is not just limited to the Navaratri. It also adorns bags, various little accessories, and large-scale pieces of home decor. Also, I'm not going to give a big spiel about it, but Indian embroidery has its own form of cruel work. Cruel is C-R-E-W-E-L, and it's a type of surface embroidery that involves wool threads. If you like 18th century embroidery or very late 17th century embroidery, you've definitely seen it. Anywho, it's from Kashmir, and it's called Ari, A-A-R-I. It's a specialty of Kashmiri artisans, and it involves making elaborate floral motifs favored by Indian royalty. There's one last type of Indian embroidery I want to get into, and that's because I wrote a fair few essays about it in undergrad. It's very close to my heart. That specific type of embroidery is embroidery using beetle wing casings. Yes, you heard me correctly. It involves stitching literal beetle wings onto clothing, usually. The wings were taken from the Buprestidae beetle, that is B-U-P-R-E-S-T-I-D-A-E, and truly this episode is me trying to pronounce and unfortunately butchering words in both Indian languages and Latin, clearly. 
Anyway, this type of beetle is better known as the jewel beetle, which is a thing I can pronounce, and it was especially trendy in the 19th century. The beetle wings were pierced with holes and clipped into shape before being sewn directly onto a ground fabric. They were oftentimes complemented by gold threads. People were really into this style because the iridescent wings were sparkly and glistened in candlelight, and also because the wings were valued for the permanence of their color and their durability. The beetle wings were used on head covers, blouses, and accessories. This style spread beyond India and became popular in 19th century Britain and continental Europe too. There are quite a few examples of beetle wing embroidery on muslin dresses from throughout the 19th century, but because the wings were delicate, they were most often used just as a trim instead of an overall design. There is an exception to that I will mention in a second, but before that, let me just say that the style was first noted in British newspapers in the 1820s and early 1830s. These newspapers mentioned that several women wore dresses decorated with beetle wings at court. This fashion spread, and by the 1860s, the fashion was very popular in Britain, so much so that beetle wings were being sent from India and embroidered onto fabric in Britain, instead of all of the embroidery being done in India itself. Perhaps the most exceptional piece of beetle wing fashion, the exception I mentioned just a minute ago, is aptly called the beetle wing dress. It was designed for actress Ellen Terry, who wore it when she played Lady Macbeth at the Lyceum Theatre in 1888. The dress was designed by Alice Commons Carr, and she said the dress should look, quote, like a soft chain armor and give the appearance of the scales of a serpent, end quote. The costume was so iconic that Terry was painted in it by John Singer Sargent in 1889. The actual dress was crocheted out of sparkling blue and green yarn and then dotted with beetle wings all over. And it still survives today in the collection of the National Trust. So we've gone from the 17th century to now and all across the Indian subcontinent, but where is Indian embroidery at today? A Victorian Albert Museum article about Indian embroidery states, quote, Today, contemporary designers are adapting traditional Indian embroidery techniques to create cutting-edge fashions, end quote. There are some notable Indian designers taking historic embroidery techniques to make contemporary clothing and textiles that celebrate hand-making skills. One example is Manish Arora, a Mumbai-born designer whose fashions involve applique, embroidery, and some wonderfully heavy embellishment from crystal bead sequins. Arora is known for his bright psychedelic color palette and kitsch motifs in clothes that combine traditional Indian embroidery, applique, and beading with western silhouettes. His clothes are truly so fun and I would love, love, love to wear even a single piece of his stuff. Indian embroidery making its way into contemporary art is also present in the work of Ekta Kahl, a London-based textile artist and educator. Kahl makes story maps, narrative cartographic textiles using kantha embroidery. She uses kantha embroidery for its ability to embellish and quilt, and also because it's a really sustainable form of making. She says, quote, I love Kantha's ethos of mending, repurposing, and upcycling. Traditionally, old saris and dhotis were layered and embroidered with threads pulled out from the borders and repurposed into functional or decorative textiles. This is the very definition of green design, which is something we need more of in our current times of fast consumption and burgeoning landfills, end quote. 
Aurora and Call are just two contemporary makers, but I really like that they are indicative of the wide variety of Indian embroidery techniques. Some of the techniques are opulent, and some are a lot simpler and involve old, already used textiles. Some are shiny, and some are bright, and some are light, and some just blend in. I love that variety. And it makes sense, of course, because the Indian subcontinent is really massive, so of course different regions have different techniques. But as someone whose research has really honed in on a very tiny island, it's really exciting to me to see the richness and variety of needlework that comes out of the millions of Indian people over hundreds of years. I hope it's exciting to you, too. I also love learning about Indian versions of art forms whose European and American styles I'm more familiar with. I mean quilting like Kantha and cruel work like Ari. I love that across the world, needlework motifs and styles and compositions and uses and colors look different, but the desire to decorate and embellish is the same, so different regions create similar needlework styles. In all that difference, there's similarity. I know I say this a lot, but the universality of needlework is so powerful and important and poignant and delightful. I love it so much, it really makes my heart sing. I think you probably also love it, or else you wouldn't be here listening to this podcast. Also, as a final note, what's important to think about, which I didn't talk about at all in this episode, is the women who stitched and are still stitching these many different types of Indian embroidery, oftentimes for almost no money. I have found very little information about Indian embroiderers beyond a few academic papers in the field of ethnography. Why is that? Maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Maybe I'm limited by being in England and not in India and not knowing a huge amount about India in the first place. I don't know. I'm sure there are many wonderful, important, meaningful, and poignant stories in past and present examples of Indian embroidery, but I'm not able to access them and I don't want to speak to some something I know woefully little about. Because I can't speak for the women who have embroidered in India in the past and who are embroidering there today, I'm posting on all the So What social media pages and the website videos of Indian women embroidering so you can see the skill and art that go into every stitch. I hope that provides some information about the people side of Indian embroidery, which wasn't a part of this episode. I hope that despite that, you've learned a lot about Indian embroidery and that you've enjoyed it. I know I have, I hope you have too, really. And I hope you'll come back next week to learn about other pieces of historic needlework and the stories they have to tell. As a reminder, be sure to check out this week's images and sources on the So What social media pages. And please, if you haven't already, like, rate, review, and subscribe to the pod, because it really helps me and the podcast out. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Now go out and stitch some stories, and please do not put beetle wings on your textiles, because the beetles really don't deserve that. Bye!